Welcome everybody to another episode of Needs Some Introduction. In today's episode, I will be primarily breaking down the second episode of The Last of Us, an episode called Infected. This is a pretty straightforward episode with a pretty straightforward plot, which won't take me too long to cover. You may have noticed I have been recommending other post-apocalyptic science fiction series that thematically tie in with this series. We began talking about Station Eleven from HBO Max. Then we discussed The Girl with All the Gifts, another zombie film with a fungal infection mythology. And for today's episode, I was actually planning on recommending a TNT and BBC co-production called The Lazarus Project, but inadvertently stumbled onto maybe a bigger story. Just as this show was about to premiere this very week and had already been promoted, running ads on the TNT website, etc., TNT decided to pull the plug on releasing this series. Now, if you've been following stories recently, you've probably noticed that many of these shows that were supposed to be coming back, some of them even pretty successful, had the plug pulled on them, and in some cases, huge losses theoretically to their home studios. So I will still give you a mini review of The Lazarus Project, which I guess will be coming out sometime in the future. I don't know if it'll end up on TNT at all. TNT is still just saying this is a delay. But the last time they did this to one of their shows, it ended up on the Roku website. So maybe there will be a future release for this. I, however, have watched the entire series. There's only seven episodes. And I watched it on the BBC homepage. This is a British co-production. And you can watch this through the BBC player by using a VPN. If you have a VPN, then simply change your geographical location to the UK and you can watch this entire series. By the way, another side note, you can also be watching the absolutely brilliant Happy Valley series, which is back for its third and final season after a six-year delay, I believe. This is a show that originally took off here in the United States by airing on Netflix. It is now, I believe, exclusively on AMC+. And I honestly don't know if season three will come back to Netflix or whether it'll end up on AMC+. I will keep you posted, but I am watching it week to week, and so can you if you use a VPN. Maybe I'll get a VPN sponsor for the podcast. <clears throat> my apologies. I'm actually getting over a cold, so my voice may be a little different, but I'll try to cut out the worst of it. So back to the Lazarus Project. This is a series that has a really fascinating premise. It's the idea that there is some technology in the future, in the near future, that allows for a reset on time. So every six months or so, the alignment of the planets allows for a reset to a previous time period. Now, most people are not aware of this at all. However, there are certain people that for whatever reason, genetically can still preserve memories of those reset timelines. These people end up getting tracked down by this MI5, MI6-like British organization to be these super spies who basically have to try to avoid these apocalyptic outcomes. And this is a strange show. It has this very bleak premise. However, it's also intermingled with this comedy, which I guess is not that uncommon for British spy series. And I almost wouldn't recommend this show for the reason that, two reasons actually, and I will not spoil anything here in case you do catch up with it, especially if you're overseas and it's convenient for you to grab onto. But first of all, some of the decisions made by our protagonists when, for example, you could imagine the complexities of the circumstance, you may want to feel the desire to reset time because something tragic has happened in that window of time between resets. Now imagine that to force a reset, you need to basically initiate an apocalyptic event. So the fact that there's this temptation and the fact that the stakes are this high 
are pretty good dramatic fodder. But the fact that it would force potentially your protagonist to make such absolutely horrendous <laughs> decisions can be a turnoff and was a bit of a turnoff to me. That being said, it has a very good setup for season two. And it does seem that the series wants to wrestle with what does this do to you mentally after you've made such horrible compromises. But the bigger reason I had issues with this show was that I had many questions about the skill set of these spies. I think their investigation, given the direction the show goes in, once again, no, no spoilers here, I just kept scratching my head going like, these spies are really, really bad at their jobs. Which by the way, after just having wrapped up season two of Slow Horses, maybe this is apparently a theme in BBC shows that these spies are always bad at their jobs because <laughs> it's questionable as to how in that season of that show, Slow Horses as well, they should have been onto this plot much earlier. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that in case you are catching up on that as well. But maybe this is all satirical. Maybe it is a joke on these spy series in general. So yeah, the tone is all over the place. The action is actually pretty good, but then you're supposed to go from this horrible, sometimes brutal violence to jokes about the deaths of some of our most beloved characters. It's very questionable. Yes, supposedly because there's a reset. If there is a reset, these people will be back, but they still need to deal with the consequences of these actions. And yeah, there's just some illogical loops. But all in all, I will give this a mild recommendation, A, because... The premise is so fascinating. It really does feel like that film Tenet, Christopher Nolan's film, where you know those folks can actually travel backwards in time, physically travel backwards in time. It's got an interesting conceit there, although I didn't really love that movie. This is just allowing them to reset to a previous point in time. And I do like this science fiction spy type genre, but take all of that with a grain of salt. It doesn't quite land the ending. I do have those issues with the tone. However, I would say that the setup for season two is very intriguing, very intriguing. So I would be curious to see what the general opinion of season two is. And maybe I would sample it depending on that result. And unfortunately, that's not conveniently available unless you use a VPN to watch it on the BBC app for free. That is a very long digression to get into what I really wanted to talk about, which is what is happening to these shows right now, where for years now, we have seen this acceleration with all of these content providers suddenly wanting to get their own streaming services. And it's all happened because of the pandemic. Suddenly everybody was stuck at home streaming content. And of course, Netflix had already had a huge success. Amazon and Apple, which have infinite amounts of money practically, were willing to lose money in creating content simply to be in this prestigious camp, just to, for example, Apple won Best Picture with Coda. Severance has been a massive hit for them. If you've seen that entertaining Timothy Chalamet commercial that's been running during all the NFL games. They've had a pretty prestigious run. Oh, of course, Ted Lasso winning the Emmy Award for Best Comedy as well, multiple times now, I think. Similarly, Amazon just spent half a billion dollars with their Lord of the Rings series. And in the midst of this, HBO launched HBO Max with exclusive content. And it seemed to really have missed the mark initially. But then right in the midst of the pandemic, they decided to suddenly release all of their their Warner Brothers films directly to HBO Max day and date. This instantly made HBO a must-have product. You had people binging, first of all, their great back catalog of The Sopranos, The Wire, Game of Thrones. They had huge hits premiering, like The White Lotus during the pandemic, and now White Lotus Season 2, House of the Dragon, and now, of course, we're covering The Last of Us. But this added 
value in allowing your kids to watch the Tom and Jerry movie, for example, and Mortal Kombat went straight to HBO Max and made money in movie theaters and was a big hit on HBO Max. And this is across the board. They even had films that flopped in theaters, for example, the Suicide Squad film, which nonetheless was a big hit for them on the streaming service itself. So given all of that, Disney Plus, of course, massively successful just as the pandemic was eating their lunch. They had no cruise ships were empty. Their parks were empty. They were losing money, but their streaming service had taken off like a rocket ship. And everybody wanted a piece of this. And now we have Peacock and Paramount Plus. And all of these companies are spending billions and billions of dollars, but they're not making any money. Even Netflix doesn't make money. So now we finally come to this moment, this culling that is probably going to decimate all of these streaming services. So the good news for all of you that are behind on your content consumption, a lot of these shows that you can't get around to, make sure you put a pin in all of them because they will inevitably end up on Netflix or some other streaming service like Roku or Tubi or Freebie that will pick up these content cheaply and stream it with ads, for example. Everybody's going ad-supported. Netflix just launched ad-supported. Freebie, of course, is Amazon's prime version of ad-supported tier. Hulu already does ad-supported. Peacock, Paramount Plus. And now HBO Max, HBO has launched a ad-supported lower tier, which means that streaming is just look, starting to look more and more like television, on-demand television, which was maybe a direction this always had to go in, but more troubling is this loss of content. HBO Max, for example, Westworld, one of their signature shows just a couple of years ago, has now unceremoniously been dumped. They are not producing season five, which was supposed to conclude the story. I'm out on that show anyway, so I don't really mind. But anybody who's a fan of that show who assumed you'd be able to watch it in the future, not only is there no season five, they have removed the first four seasons from availability of streaming and they still own the property. So where is it going to end up? Who can get their hands on this? I guess if you can get a Blu-ray, you can buy a physical copy of it. But the assumption that streaming somehow gives you access to content indefinitely is a big question mark now. And even other things like Infinity Train was a very uh, cult popular fantasy series on HBO Max has also vanished. Unless it's something that is a big signature show or movie, it may very well disappear. And there's a giant question mark as to whether even those properties, those popular ones may disappear. Maybe HBO will decide that, or Discovery now, who owns Warner Brothers, will decide they want to force people to buy the Batman if they want to see it before the next film comes out. So once again, the very thing that made streaming so convenient, that you don't have to have a bunch of discs on the shelves, but you have access to all this content you love, that may not be the case anymore, which really breaks the appeal of streaming services in general, in my opinion. Worse than that, it also ends relationships with creators. Christopher Nolan, speaking of Tenet, left Warner Brothers. He had made all his films through Warner Brothers and left them because of their decisions on streaming. And I'm sure he would have left, if not then, then definitely now, with this new policy of dumping content just for tax write-offs. And, and everybody was piling on the decisions that Warner's had made. But now everybody has decided that this is a strategy for cutting corners, all the way up to Netflix, who, for example, had a very good relationship with the creators of the series Dark, which had become a giant cult hit on their platform, and had given those creators three seasons to make 1899. Now, I wasn't a huge fan of 1899. You could hear my review here in the podcast itself. But that being said, you are telling these folks that the arc of this story will be three seasons. So if it wasn't satisfying in season one, that's okay. We're making a investment that this story is going to pay off in 
three seasons. The creators of the show are writing a three season arc. The audience is in for three seasons. They're thinking, okay, I'm a little confused as to where we're going right now in the moment, but there's another season coming. And as Netflix now has started to just cut all of these shows that had promised seasons two or seasons three, and they're just cutting them off, if they don't hit some kind of internal metric that they're looking to hit, then why as an audience member, are you going to commit to a show that is probably going to have the plug pulled on it? This seems to be a bad strategy on all the streamers parts. However, I do understand that they're trying to cut corners. They're losing money. And for years now, growth gave you stock price. So if Netflix was growing, their stock went up, whether they lost money or not, does HBO have user growth, then we will boost the discovery stock Disney as well. And maybe now that's simply the end of the line. I'm not necessarily averse to that. I feel like there is a glut of content. I feel like there is too much content and that does delude quality. Plus there's a lot of quality stuff that I never get around to. So maybe we're happy to have this moment in time when things like Copenhagen Cowboy, which I enjoyed, which would never have gotten funding if it needed to turn a profit day one in an impossibility. Maybe that is just this brief moment in time and maybe that moment has passed. And the fact that this show I was going to recommend to you, The Lazarus Project, got pulled unceremoniously at the very last minute from the TNT website makes me think that maybe that day has come. All right. Given that giant digression, I do want to recommend something for you that you can watch. And I'm pretty certain there will be more seasons of this show. And it's been very satisfying for me up until this point. It just came back last week. It's a show called The Legend of Vox Machina. This is an animated fantasy comedy series, although it gets so grim after the first few episodes that it's barely a comedy anymore, although the characters are still very entertaining. This series has a pretty fascinating backstory. This was a Dungeons and Dragons campaign called Critical Role. I think originally the creators of this mythology wanted to actually make a film. They had a film script. The film script was not picked up. So instead they started doing a Twitch stream telling their story week to week. Between Twitch and YouTube, some of these episodes had up to 1 million downloads. So they had a built-in audience. And a few years back, they started a Kickstarter to make a 22-minute special based on a storyline that was undeveloped in the main storyline. And their target was $750,000. Within the first hour, they had raised $1 million, which immediately unlocked additional levels to this. And basically, they said every time they raised another million dollars, they would add another episode to this, now not a special, but a series. Within the first 45 days that the campaign was open, they raised over $10 million. I think they ended up at $11 million, which funded 10 episodes of the show. And then Amazon came along, obviously seeing that there was a built-in audience for this, and they picked it up. I mean, the show was pretty much financed for the first 10 episodes. The first season ended up being 12 episodes. And all that is to say that an interesting business model, speaking of the streaming wars and how creators are losing these contracts with these streaming companies, here's a very different business model that could be a sign of things to come. If you can get your fans to fund the production of the film, this is like indie filmmaking 101, and then you get studios to basically be your distributors and you share the prices, the costs with them. This could be a huge boon for these folks. As a matter of fact, yet one more di digression, you look at Blumhouse, which has the hugely successful Megan in theaters right now. And that's basically what they do, right? They make these small budgets 
they self-finance, and then they just get distribution deals, and they've made huge sums off of these projects. So an interesting backstory to the creation of the show. But beyond that, a very entertaining show. I am not a Dungeons & Dragons player. I am also not a huge fan of fantasy in general. So I really appreciate the tone of this show, which is definitely in the realm of fantasy, but with a very sarcastic tone. It's very much like Guardians of the Galaxy. It's this bumbling group of folks that come together. They seem on the surface to be a very incompetent team, but they are able to align their strengths and weaknesses in a way that they end up becoming the protectors of the realm to a large extent. There's a lot of comedy here, very anachronistic language and humor that might remind you not only of Guardians of the Galaxy, but also maybe Deadpool and also the boys and even more so because it's also 2D animated, Invincible, also on Amazon Prime, both of those on Amazon Prime. Very much if you liked the way that Invincible as a direct parallel deconstructs the comic book movie or how Guardians of the Galaxy is a satire of superhero tropes, then this may be right up your alley. And if you want to sample it, what I would say is check out the first two episodes for two reasons. Firstly, it's its own self-contained arc, probably constructed that way considering the kickstarting roots of this project. They wanted to prove out that they could tell a story in a finite amount of episodes. Those first two episodes are its own self-contained story, although it does spin off into a much bigger story. And also because they're the worst episodes of this entire project, not that they're bad, but they are the worst. So if you appreciate even those two episodes, which are self-contained and not the highest quality, in my opinion, compared to the others, then you're definitely going to enjoy the rest of the series. Surprisingly, after that small arc, that two episode arc goes into a very dense and disturbing, uh, oftentimes mythology, despite the fact that the show continues to have this comedic tone. And now just back in season two, and now this week, there'll be three more episodes, I believe. There was three episodes last week, three episodes this week, and there'll be 12 episodes. So two more batches of three. So a quick, easily accessible binge of this show, even season two. Oh, and by the way, 22-minute episodes. So when I say you got three episodes in one night, how are you going to possibly be able to catch up with this? It's three 22-minute episodes. You know, it's an hour of time, very quick to binge season one and very quick catch up on season two. And speaking of this season two batch, those three episodes, a surprisingly tragic turn in the last of those episodes. No spoilers here, but given the fact that even when the stakes were so high in season one, there was always this lighthearted tone that made you think that in the end, everything's going to be okay, at least for our heroes, because lots and lots of people die on this show, by the way. But things have gotten pretty heavy with this most recent batch of three episodes. And I'm sure anybody who's a diehard fan of these characters has already caught up on this. But if you haven't, check it out. Check those out those first two episodes. If you enjoy them, you'll definitely enjoy the rest of the series. And that's The Legend of Vox Machina, and that's available on Amazon Prime, in the US anyway. All right, so finally, let's get into episode two of The Last of Us, Infected. This episode is directed by Neil Druckmann, the creator of the video game. And we open in Jakarta, Indonesia. We're back in 2003. And from the headlines in last week's episode, there was some reference to the fact that Jakarta was the launching point of this virus. I'm sorry, I said virus. I mean, it's actually a fungus. Similar to last week where we had this chilling scientific explanation for what this fungus could actually do, we have yet another very chilling sequence here. We open with some military folks walking into a restaurant. Everyone is on edge here. They're there to 
grab a doctor who happens to be having her lunch there, but she's not in trouble. They actually want her to do an autopsy on a body. This woman's been shot in the head and they ask for her to inspect the body. She sees a bite on her leg and when she makes an incision, she notices that there's something growing under the skin. She asks for more background on this woman. Turns out she worked at a grain facility, grain processing facility, which she mentions is a good substrate for fungus. Fungus can spread through our food supply, through our grain supply. As a matter of fact, it is speculated that possibly rye ergot may have infected the grain supply back during this, the era of the Salem witch trials. And the hallucinations, some of these visions that people were having may have been hallucinations brought upon by the fungus in their food supply. Back to the episode, during this autopsy, she opens this woman's mouth and notices that not only is there fungus there, that it starts to move. It's still alive. She immediately freaks out. This military officer tells her, I have brought you here so you can tell us how we can contain this. And her response, chillingly, is that she wants to go home and be with her family. And the way to contain this is to bomb the city to keep this thing from spreading. Apparently, that did not work, unfortunately. We jump back to 2023. Ellie is waking up. She is being closely watched by Tess and Joel, who have been awake all night or sleeping very, very lightly. While Ellie's out of the room, there's a conversation between Joel and Tess. Joel basically wants to kill Ellie. He doesn't know of anybody who's ever been infected and has not turned. But Tess, at this moment, maybe just wants to believe, wants to believe that there's still some hope for the world. But even though there's this glimmer of hope in her mind, to Joel, she just sells it as, look, let's just deliver her. Who cares? Let's get the truck and we're on our way. Of course, they're in on a mission to deliver her to a Firefly safe house beyond the walls of Boston. We get another look at Ellie's bite location. Joel wants proof that it's not spreading. And we do see some texture under the skin, but as she mentions, it's not growing any further. We had seen in that autopsy in Jakarta that there is something growing under the skin from the location of the bite mark. They start heading out. Joel and Ellie are just starting to bond now. She's never been outside the city, starts asking him questions. He's not that forthcoming, but little by little, even now, you can see that he's warming to her slightly. He's probably thinking of the relationship he had with his daughter. This is a very different girl than his daughter, obviously, but I'm sure he can't help but make the connection in his own mind. As they're working their way towards the Firefly safe house, they come across a huge number of infected people. They're practically motionless, but Tess explains that they can't make any kind of contact with them. They're able to communicate with each other via this fungal network under the ground. And once again, not that any of this is factually accurate, but it is based on true science. Fungus networks underground are one giant organism. As a matter of fact, in Oregon, in the Blue Mountains, there is a fungus that is the size of 100, I'm sorry, it was the size of 1,665 football fields. It is the largest living thing on earth. Not only can this giant fungus communicate amongst itself, it's one giant organism. It's also known that multiple trees, for example, can communicate with each other via their root network. So for example, if locusts suddenly hit part of a forest, trees on the other side of the forest start to fold up their leaves in anticipation of the attack from the locust. So plants have this way of communicating via chemical and scent. So there is something loosely based on real science here. Now, considering that fungus grows everywhere, as a matter of fact, we see it here growing on almost every surface. It does raise the question as to whether natural selection would suggest that it would jump to human beings. Then again, fungi do not need any animals to reproduce and do have a very similar relationship as we're seeing here in this show with certain insects. Not with mammals, though. No. Not yet, anyway. Just something else to keep you awake at night. 
Joel is looking for safe places to pass. They pass through a hotel that's flooded. You see that Joel's skin is broken. And even as he reaches out to help Ellie, he still flinches at one moment, afraid of getting infected. And then passing through the hotel, they decide to pass through a museum as well. They find that there is this fungus everywhere, but it's dry, which means it's probably inactive. And hopefully there are no zombies around. Now this museum that they pass through the set here is really beautiful. You see this fungus growing everywhere. And as they move through the building, the building is shifting. Just yet another thing to worry about that they could literally be crushed by the building itself as it shifts under their feet or something collapses up, uh, upon them. <coughs> the museum does seem pretty safe, but then they notice a fresh body. And then they hear this clicking sound. And this was teased by supposedly an urban le legend that Ellie had heard earlier in the episode, that there are these clickers, zombies that no longer have eyes because this bloom has basically erupted from their brains and they use echolocation to find their prey. This leads to a pretty tense sequence where they're trying to sneak through the building without alerting the clickers. This really much shows this is a stealth level, really, if you want to think about this from a gaming point of view. I do have a question about using guns on these clickers. Their heads are basically like giant mushrooms, so I can't imagine a bullet does much damage to that. I guess you have to aim for the base of the spine, which is a pretty small target. And I guess that explains why it takes so many shots to finally take these things down. During the fracas, Ellie gets bit yet again and makes a joke about it. And it actually is kind of funny. So we have even additional proof that this thing does not work on her. And as they exit the museum, Tess talks to Joel and seems even more committed to getting him to see the possibility of some hope here. And right away, we know what that probably means. And it turns out to be the case. When they finally meet up with the fire at the Fireflies Rendezvous location, they find all of them are dead recently. They're not sure what happened, but they speculate that it was probably someone was bitten, got into the building, then the infection started to spread, a battle ensued between the healthy and the dead until there was none left. This is when Tess finally reveals the fact that she was indeed bitten. And we can see, unlike Ellie's bite, that this is already starting to spread across her skin. She'd been bitten in the neck. Someone in the building is not actually fully dead, and Joel quickly shoots him. Once Joel shoots this firefly, this zombie firefly, it alerts the swarm, and we hear them starting to approach. Tess tells Joel and Ellie they need to leave immediately, and she's going to buy them some time. She's going to lure them into the building and detonate the entire location. There's oil there. There are grenades. She can take out most of the swarm if she's smart about it. Joel does reluctantly leave. Theoretically, he might just return to Boston. But Tess says, I need you to do this. I need to believe in something. I want to believe that all the bad things we've done were for a reason. And he hasn't been a good boyfriend to her. And he feels guilty at this moment that he never told her how he actually felt. And she basically tells him, it doesn't matter, but there's one thing you can do. It's not just about survival. We need a reason to survive. And if there's a chance that Ellie can lead to a cure, you need to get her to the West Coast. They leave. And in the background, there's a giant explosion as she detonates the oil and grenades inside the building. She is struggling to light this lighter, although we know inevitably she's going to have to light it. But there is this interesting moment where one of the zombies comes with those fungus tendrils coming out of its mouth and gives her this kiss of death. And she accepts it. It's curious as to how this thing works now that her fate is sealed. And with that, the episode ends. We see scenes for next week. I'm very much looking forward to this. There is signs of less grimness next week. We have Nick Offerman providing some comedy, even in the, the upcoming scenes. And as I had hoped for and speculated last week, 
I would assume they're going to travel across the country and run into these different pockets of humanity. And I really do need some humanity here in this show. So here's my opinion now here at the end. I understand this is a 10 episode show, so I'm not judging it based on the moments here. But part of the reason that I was out on The Walking Dead after season one was this nihilistic tone, this never ending lack of humanity that people would rather throw someone else under the bus, never lend a hand. Basically, the people in that show were much worse than the zombies. They were the bigger threat by far. And I take that point, but at some point, you need to start rebuilding. You have to stop tearing down and start rebuilding. And maybe it is Walking Dead fatigue, but this is a particular tone at this moment in the show, in this show, that I've kind of had enough of. That's not to say the show is not excellently made. The sets are beautiful. It's very interesting to see these desiccated buildings. The city apparently has been bombed, as we saw that strategy mentioned in that Jakarta opening sequence of the episode. And apparently some places it worked, some places it did not, not around Boston, obviously. So I am curious to see what are those different strategies? How did people survive? How is the outer world surviving or not in this circumstance? And I just need to see more of that variability. And I'm pretty certain we're going to see it. As I mentioned, this is a 10 episode season. So we're still just in the first act. It is just setting up the stakes, the history of the circumstance. <coughs> but I very much am looking forward to the pivot in the show. And I do think it will begin next week. And if I had the ability of just watching the next episode, I would definitely be kicking it off immediately after episode two. So still fully committed. But I do need for me to enjoy this show throughout. This cannot be the tone all the way through. And I do not believe it to be. I do not think that is going to be the case. But at the same time, I certainly do not want to see another repeat of The Walking Dead season one, for example. What is the new thing that this series is going to provide? It has not yet defined what that is, but given the talent behind the camera and in front of it, I do think we will discover that over the course of the series. Okay, later this week, as part of our conversation, Sona and I will be having a conversation about the third episode of the second season of Your Honor. But along with that, we will be discussing Poker Face, which is available on Peacock. I believe four episodes drop on day one. I'm not sure this Peacock release strategy where they put out almost half the season in one shot and then go week to week beyond that. I think you really need to either make it all available to binge or make it more incremental. Maybe two. I mean, Apple oftentimes will do two and then go week to week. But four seems like a big ask if you are actually expecting people to go week to week to do four episodes. And if you're going to go that far, then why not make the whole thing available? Regardless of, for whatever reasons, this strange release strategy for their product, I am very much interested in seeing this series, a comedy Mystery of the Week, starring Natasha Lyonne, brought to us by Ryan Johnson, who just had a huge success with the Knives Out sequel, Glass Onion, on Netflix. And Natasha Lyonne playing a very much Columbo-like character after, honestly, doing a Peter Falk impression, basically, in her previous series, Russian Doll. In this show, she has some nearly supernatural ability to tell when someone's lying. She just can always tell when someone's telling the truth or not. And very much like Columbo, we actually see the crime committed at the top of the episode. It's a murder of the week. It's an all-star cast of perpetrators and possibly victims as well. And as she encounters these people and discovers whether they're lying or not, she slowly unravels these crimes, very much like Columbo, who solves the crime and we watch him solving the crime and we know how the crime was committed and can he figure it out by the end of the episode. I always was a big fan of Columbo, so I'm very much like that formula. Very curious to see this version of it. 
And that is on Thursday, I believe, Wednesday or Thursday, Thursday, I believe. So we will not be able to watch all four of those episodes, but I will sample some of it and give you my opinion of it in this weekend's episode of our recap of Your Honor. I also want to bring up the fact that another show that I will be watching, and we'll see if we get to cover it on the show at all. There's just too much content coming out all at once, strangely. On Apple TV+, Plus, we also have Harrison Ford in his first TV comedy, along with Jason Segel in a show created by the same creative team behind Ted Lasso. And it's called Shrinking. And it's the story of this psychiatrist, played by Jason Segel, who decides to suddenly start telling his patients exactly what he thinks of them. And comedy ensues. So I'm very curious about the cast, very curious about the creative force behind this after the huge success of Ted Lasso. And that is also debuting this weekend. So I'll be checking that out and we'll we'll try to get you a review of that possibly for next week. But if you want to follow along, that'll be available this weekend. Now, if you're catching this episode early, this is the end of the episode. But if you're catching it a little later, I will repost it with a conversation I'm having with my sister discussing this same episode of The Last of Us. So stay tuned for that or come back to hear that conversation. Talk to you soon. All right, Celia. So I have already done the episode breakdown. So the floor is yours. What did you think of this episode, Infected, the second episode of The Last of Us? I thought it was really good because they explained how horrifying this situation really is. And then on top of that, you get to see what the effects are in the end. It just seems so hopeless, the entire scenario they're in. So I think they did a really good job with that. And then you got more background bonding with the characters, the main characters. So I think that's really all that happened. And these creatures, what are they called? They're fantastic to look at. I don't know who designed them, but wow. Clickers. Why do they call them clickers? Because they can't see, so they use uh, echolocation. So they have to click to find their prey. Because the top of their heads are turned into a mushroom. (laughs) Oh, my God. It's so amazing to look at them because it's like disgusting, but oddly pretty. It's really gross, though. I don't know how to put all those three together. That's how I felt about it. So good job. We see different versions of the zombies here. We have the ones that are, you know, recently bit. Then you have seen also like the one who approached her at the end, right before she dies, Tess dies, of course, in this episode. He uh, has those spores sticking out of the top of his head. And once again, if you see these actual fungus that this is an analog to, that's what happens to these ants, right? It climbs into their brains and then it makes this plume that comes out of the top of their heads and then it shoots the spores out everywhere. Basically has a similar impact on humans in this version of reality. Now, the other version of these, the clickers, once the once the fungus becomes so predominant, it basically takes up their entire brain cavity. So of course, they've, lo- they've lost their eyes. They basically lost the entire top of their heads. Now that's why they click because they no longer have eyes to see. Not sure if this is the most efficient way to, (laughs) if this is your vector for infecting other people, not sure if losing their eyes is the best way to uh, infect them, but it is a memorable image, of course. It's creepy, but fascinating to look at, maybe, is the best way to put it. I also like the first scene of this episode was fantastic also. We discussed last time how we liked the way the series itself just took off because they explain the horrors without over-explaining. Mm-hmm. And I like how in this episode, they do the same thing. 
through someone else's eyes in a different scenario. Before going into the effects of what that scenario is, this episode starts with a further explanation of what's happened. And then you get to see everything up to the clickers. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. So I think I assume now this has been two episodes in a row that we will continue to have this back and forth to flesh out the background, which I appreciate. We don't have to spend two or three episodes just doing the lead up to the breakout of these um, of this fungus. And then you don't also have to have the uh, and vice versa, right? So you don't have to have just something in the present tense, just in the past. And like I said, two episodes in a row where they have these cold opens in the past, I assume that will continue. Maybe we'll get more details on how this thing spread and what was occurring and maybe even how Boston ended up becoming this quarantine zone, et cetera. So I would look forward to just understanding more of that as the show uh, progresses. And like you mentioned, it's all dovetailing with what we already saw in episode one, right? There was on the news, right, Sarah, the daughter, uh, there's a headline saying that there was an explosion in Jakarta and that the city was being bombed. And she goes, is it terrorism? And her dad says, I don't know. But now we know what it was, right? There was the military themselves bombing the city because they were trying to prevent this from spreading. Uh, apparently the same thing they did in Boston. I was surprised last week to be like, well, okay, this thing, I understand that nature will kind of fill in every space that uh, is not currently occupied by people <laughs> over a pretty quick period of time. But like, why are the skyscrapers knocked over and stuff? And apparently that was because they actually bombed the city, right? To try to keep this thing from spreading and apparently did not work. How morbid is that? How did you feel about it? I appreciate how well made it is. I, For me, it's a little too much. It's a little too one note at this point. I know this is, and I already said this in my review, I understand. I appreciate the fact that this is like the first act of this story. So I know they're setting the table, but I appreciate how grim <laughs> the story is now. But I do need to have some shred of humanity start to poke its way through. This was the thing that kind of turned me off to The Walking Dead. And it's very much in that tone again, which I'm not a huge fan of. For me to be satisfied with the season of television, it has to be more than this. But once again, this is only episode two. So I'm not saying that the whole show is going to be like this and I'm already sick of it. That's not my point. My point is that maybe they're setting the table. The stakes are so low. There's barely any chance of humanity surviving this thing based on what we've seen. And then of course, then you can only go up from there, right? So hopefully that is the direction of the show. You mean you're afraid that it's going to just remain as grim as it is? Yeah, just purely nihilistic, right? Like no matter what they do, you know, everybody they encounter just ends up dead and there's nothing you could do. And, you know, it's it very much the thing I didn't like about The Walking Dead where end up at another place and they're like, things could be good here. And then no, they're actually eating people or whatever, right? It's just like, all right, <laughs> all right, all right, all right, I'm, I'm sick of this. <laughs> so, anyway, <laughs> but, but of course, like I said, this is only two episodes in setting the context for the story. So this is a very long season of show still ahead of us. I have way more patience. Also keep in mind, I think I watched 11, se- like what was that? 11 seasons of The Walking Dead? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Pro- probably, yeah. It was a lot. To me, I am satisfied with what I'm seeing. I don't even care if it stays at this tone longer than you would want it to stay at this tone. I actually don't mind. I do need to see something else besides just this, but I'm still okay with the pace. It's not necessarily the pace. I just need this show. And once again, I am not judging the show yet. I have not seen enough of it to make that judgment at this moment. 
I need the show to be more than this because whether it is 28 Days Later, whether it is Station Eleven with some of the themes that it's touching on already, whether it is The Walking Dead, it comes down to the idea of like, what is this show about, right? Like what, why this show? Why is HBO making this hundred million plus dollar investment in this show? What's the story they want to tell that isn't the same as 25 other stories we've already seen, right? And that's what I still want to know. And I do not expect, I want to be clear about this, that I'm negging on the show already. I do not expect the show to tell me exactly what it is after episode two. As a matter of fact, I, I mentioned this also in my recap in Station Eleven, I could not judge that series series by the first two episodes. And that's a much shorter series. I would be disappointed if the show is not more than this, because I would feel like, okay, it's well-made, but so what? Like I have seen this story already, but I do feel like it will be more than this. I'm just waiting for that moment to come. I just assume that it's going yeah. to turn into something besides just this. Oh, I'm yeah, okay with this tone for way longer than you'd be okay with it. But my assumption the whole time is that it's leading somewhere right. different than what we've seen before. I did worry about them killing off Tess after just the second episode. It did kind of play into my worry that this is going to be, and then they're going to meet someone else and they'll be friendly with them and then they die. <laughs> they meet somebody else and they build a relationship with them and then they die. And I'm like, I, that I think I would wear me down at some point. I don't think it's going to be that. That would no, be boring. I, yes, I agree. As a matter of fact, that scenes for next week with uh, Nick Offerman showing up already seems to have injected uh, some humor into the show. So I do look forward to that, just seeing some fresh faces in a different locale. If this third episode was available, I would have watched it immediately after this one, because I almost like needed something as an antidote to this episode. <laughs> this is my fear. Your fear is, I hope it's not like everything else I've seen. My fear is, is the entire world going to be overrun by weeds everywhere they go? I want to see something also set in a different locale. I don't want 10 hours of watching them run around in weeds, like aesthetically. Well, I mean, you, you can correlate it to, and I wouldn't be surprised if we see this. I actually thought that was really amazing how well set designed, I guess you, would, you wouldn't call it set design considering how this is uh landscape you're looking at the station 11 to make another analogy back to station 11 i loved seeing like the flashback to the gas station right before the pandemic hit and then right afterwards where you see it all overgrown and you see there uh, the characters are there kind of milling around and seeing how things have changed and that's exactly what that is because the reality is yeah everything's going to be overgrown because it's like my what i mentioned about the uh mental hospital here near us they evacuated that place and within 10, 20 years, it was completely decimated by weeds and trees and and every and overgrown because that's what happens, right? And, and this fungus too, apparently is spreading everywhere. You see it crawling literally uh, inside the walls of the buildings everywhere. It just has spread everywhere. But a place that is more organized and more prepared to take on the challenge of this disaster uh, to humanity would be more civilized so it doesn't feel like just this hopeless like destroyed world the entire time which is kind of what you were saying before about the right. tone or the right. theme it's, so far it, right exactly and i mean when you hear about this fact that this is and by the way this is a real thing not exactly real but based on fact for example in oregon there is a in the Blue Mountains, there is a giant fungus network underneath that is the size of 2,000 football fields or something like that. It is the largest living organism in the world. 
All that is to say that, you know, fungus lives under our feet all the time. Whenever you see a mushroom, that's just a little piece of a fungus network. So every time you see a mushroom, that means that there are, you know, miles of fungus laying a network of fungus laying under the ground. And this is in Boston where this thing is basically spreading uh, across the entire, uh, you know, under the city. So, you know, this is goes back to that idea of how bleak this situation could possibly be. If this thing is spreading this way, where are they safe? It's like almost nowhere. It's going to be a pretty bleak mission for them, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see how it turns out. I was saying the coming attractions for the season, you do see them like, for example, in the mountains where it's snowing. And uh, so you definitely are going to see different communities around the country. So that's definitely going to be the case. There's a long trip between Boston and California. I think everybody's doing a great job. The actors here, they are perfectly okay with, you know, living or dying and just taking things as they come because they don't have any control of what's going on around them. So I find it very believable that they would take on this mission risk their life for this mission, that they would do all the things that they have done, especially when you know you're going to die. If you can blow up as many clickers or whatever's going on there as you can, it makes sense that she would just die in that way. I like that they have nothing to live for. And now they have this mission, right, which exactly. is something to live for. The uh, Yeah, I think that that is important, very important that she... Uh needs a reason like, you know she even says it to him that she's done terrible things out of purely selfish reasons for like no reason at all and she now now that she's dying basically she wants to believe there's something worth fighting for even if it's wrong like and i think that there's proof now that she this girl has ellie has something special about her she got bit and once again was not infected the second time around more importantly is the fact that Tess needed to believe that she doesn't die for no reason, right? So now that, like you said, now that she knows she's going to die, absolutely, she doesn't have any reason to fight for her life, I should say, then she still wants to fight for something. And that is that maybe, just maybe this is a cure. And what else is there to live for? I mean, if you know that in the near future, no matter how hard you fight, you're probably going to end up dead, then at least fight for something. Yes, because honestly, if I was these people, this is just me, like a quick death, in their situation, I would find it a relief. Yeah. You know, why wake to... up to this every day, but now they have a mission. The other um, thing that I hope that they give us more detail on, I hope that there's an explanation is I'm still very curious to understand how does this thing spread? Because these um, spores bursting from the heads of these things apparently is some kind of vector as well, because why else would that happen? But then if you can get infected from airborne spores, then why the biting? And not only that, you go back to episode one and the grandmother who gets infected. She hasn't been bitten. I'm pretty sure if she wandered outside and someone bit her, uh, even if they thought it was a dog, they would have like called the, the doctor to have her looked at or take her to the hospital. But she's just sitting there and then she starts to twitch in the background. So she somehow got infected. And if she got infected, how come other people did not? So I still need to understand a little bit more about how this thing travels they haven't really uh, explained that yet. I mean, in the video game, I know that the spores are actually a vector. And apparently you have to, in the game, you have to wear masks oftentimes when you're out in the bout. But I'm sure that they didn't want to have people wearing gas masks all the time in the TV show. So they have to come up with an alternate explanation as to why everybody's not infected at this point. Yeah, I agree. And I still think some people just have natural immunity. So you're always going to run into more than just this girl. She clearly has natural immunity or something's going on there. But she's sick too. She said yeah, she's she infected. Has, 
Yeah, but I believe there must be people out there who have natural immunity and are not sick. Probably not the only one. I totally agree with that. But I do think that she is extremely rare because if the government knew that there were a percentage of the population, even if it's five or 10% that were immune to this, you would immediately take their blood and you would start to figure out like what is the antibody in there that's fighting this thing because you'd want to mass produce it and get it out to the public, right? You wouldn't. So I think that she's extremely rare. Inevitably, there has to be more than one person because it just statistically doesn't make sense. But I do not think that it's like 25% of the population is immune. They would have manufactured some kind of uh, antidote at this point. We have so many questions. Yes. It remains to be explained. Did you watch anything else? Anything else you've been catching up on or watching that you wanted to talk about? Well, I saw two horror movies this weekend, and mm-hmm. it was Alone, because you said that, oh, yeah. who was mm-hmm. it, the same director? So I saw Alone, and yeah. I saw Sick. Yeah. Yeah, I saw Sick. I've seen Alone before, obviously. I recommended it to you. I was like, eh. <laughs> that was my opinion of that. You liked it more than I did, I think. I did. I thought it was pretty good, actually, because it was all about suspense, and I liked these characters, so I wanted them to escape. So, I mean, I was invested. It was easy. The reason I put it on is because I was tired and I figured if I did fall asleep during this movie, it would be okay. <laughs> That's not a great recommendation. <laughs> that's a recommendation. If it's a show you don't care, if it's a movie you don't care to get to the end of, then that's the recommendation. Yes. But as I'm watching it, I stayed awake and I said, oh, you know what? This is pretty good. I kind of like this movie. So that's my recommendation. Like if you want something that's kind of like easy, you don't have to think real hard. There's no hidden meanings. Like this movie is just that. Carlos loves those. That is his favorite kind of movie that I don't have to think too hard. Everything's kind of spelled out and now I can just have fun with it movie. That's his movie. I didn't understand the very, very strong reviews for this film because I think that there are many slasher films that come out every single year, so many of them, that are more entertaining and more uh, even innovative than this one is. Uh, you know, This is from the same writer of the Scream, the original Scream trilogy, Kevin Williamson. And um, he's trying to refresh his career a little bit. He's been producing TV shows for decades now, primarily. And I guess he wanted to get back into the horror movie biz. And of course, the Scream Franchise continues without him, but still very successful. So maybe he just wants to get back into the into the slasher scene again. There is definitely not going to be a sequel to this one because there's really nothing interesting about the slasher. And, you know, the reveal at the end is so silly, <laughs> which is a big problem for me, that I was, my general opinion of it was, I found it to be a very generic slasher about half an hour into it once things started to unfold. Only reason I was hanging in there was to be like, okay, well, I want to know why. That's the only reason I want to know the explanation at the end. The explanation came and it was really, really dumb. So I'm like, okay, well, (laughs) probably not the best way to spend my hour and a half. Although it is short. If you love slashers, like Carlos does, check that out. And the reviews have been very, very positive. So I think most people will probably like it more than I did. I found it to be pretty dull. Like I said, there's a dime a dozen slashers come out like once a week. And most of them are better than this, in my opinion. It is very well made, by the way. That's the reason I recommended Alone for you. A film, also a film that I don't really like that much. But there's this certain grittiness and cruelty to his suspense, this director's suspense, and the violence in his films. And I think that that's probably what you appreciated about both of them. I think that that is a different tone for slasher films. So that is what makes it a little bit interesting. 
But beyond that, beyond the tone, I think I'd like to see him working with a better script, a more interesting script. Not a terrible way to spend an hour and a half, but I can name 25 slashers that are either funnier or grislier or more entertaining or have a better twist. There's so many better films to watch than this one. If you don't want to take it too seriously and you don't care if you fall asleep in the middle of it and you don't want to think too hard, this is perfect. And it is. It's perfect. I would say Alone of the two is the better film. What did you think of Alone? It is better. I thought it was way more suspenseful than this one. Yes, exactly. It was very much more believable. So it's a better movie. But that movie will affect you more. It's (laughs) The movie I just saw, Sick, is almost like... uh, teen romp movie but it's a slasher movie so i saw them differently alone is intense i agree that's part of the reason i like it better but the reason i have an issue with sick if sick is supposed to be fun and it has such a stupid ending that it could have been a comedy really a a more comic like for example the way the scream movie has comedic elements to it the tone is so dark and so raw that it does not bring out the humor at all in the material and vice versa, if it was going to double down on that kind of cruelty and the visceral aspects of the suspense of Alone, for example, once again, which I think is very intense. I don't love that movie, but it definitely does. It's very effective at what it's trying to do. Then I feel like the script is wrong for it because it needed to have something a little more disturbing about it by the end of it. So yeah, it, I feel like we have a goofy script with a serious and grim tone, which does not work for some, it doesn't work. I, I didn't find it funny, like when it was supposed to be funny. And I found that the suspense was deflated by this absolutely ridiculous plot <laughs> or the reveal there at the end anyway. It's like a, a teen movie, a teen view. If you're hanging out with your, when I was 18, 17 or 16 and my friends are coming over and we're like let's watch a movie a horror movie this is something i would have put on i think about like you know using scream as an example right scream is a movie that is such a romp because they're in high school you get to know all these different characters who's the suspect who's whatever this is like one night in a cabin you don't know anything about these people these people are not interesting in any way at all it's not entertaining like it's like i do not like these people (laughs) i don't want to spend time with them you meet them for five minutes and then we're like oh my god someone's trying to kill them i don't care i don't know these people why do i care and as a matter of fact they're annoying like why at at that I barely remember this movie because only right. three things happen in the whole movie. Exactly. I'm just saying. It all happens in like one looking hour. For some, it's like in real yeah, time. Easy breezy. <laughs> I'm still thinking like, why do I like it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to mention that you might want to catch up on, there is a show on Amazon Prime called Carnival Row. It's coming back for a second and final season on Amazon Prime in just a few weeks. It stars Orlando Bloom and Cara Delevingne. And it takes place, I mean- Honestly, skip the first 30 seconds of this. They have this like dense placard telling you about this universe of fairies and these lands and blah, blah, blah. You could throw it all out the window. You could basically just pretend, imagine an alternate London where like fairies exist. And it's World War I. These fairies are basically being pushed off their lands by this proto-Nazi regime. And they're trying to find solace in other parts of Europe and or this fictional world. But, you know, it's basically Europe. There's a lot of backlash against immigrants. And this is basically, I'd say the the tone of it is very much like the early seasons of Penny Dreadful, if you like that show. 
almost feels like Victorian Europe, but there's fairies. You see supernatural creatures. There's werewolves sometimes. So it's a blend of fantasy elements and the real world. And it's beautifully it designed. Called? Carnival Row. The best thing about it's on Amazon Prime. And the best wow. thing about it is that you can almost watch it as a procedural. Orlando Bloom is a detective. And every single week, he's solving a crime that has to do with these supernatural elements. And through his sleuthing, you find out more about his backstory. He has a very complicated backstory. He had a former relationship with one of these fairies. You discover more about this world through the murders and investigations that he does. I really am enjoying it so far. There's only eight episodes. I think I'm like halfway into it. And I am planning to finish it because I'll probably cover it here when it premieres here uh, in two or three weeks when it comes out in February. Check out the first two episodes. If you like it, then stick with it. All right. I just put it on my list. A lot of Amazon Prime recommendations, actually. All right. So we will pick it up next week. We'll see where they're headed to. Looks like they're headed somewhere towards the Midwest with Nick Offerman. And I'm sure there'll be more guest stars as people keep dropping off the show. You got to keep adding new people to the cast, I guess. So <laughs> that is, uh, and it remains to be seen. And we'll touch base again next week and see how it goes. Hopefully there's a, sh a, a, a one, at least one little sh ray of light. <laughs> I hope, I hope. There will be, I have faith. All right, I'll talk to you soon.